0: next few weeks in the Upper Room Discourse in John, and there's this wonderful little book by Sinclair Ferguson named Lessons from the Upper Room. Anyone here familiar with this little book? There's also, I know Bobby's mentioned it to me before, Uh, Sinclair Ferguson is great, has that deep Scottish rogue, and uh, (laughs) he uh, lectures on it, actually. I think the book is taken from some uh, lectures or uh, messages that he taught out of this. So you need to listen to it or get the book. Really helpful if you want something supplemental to go to our study. But uh, that being said, I encourage you to turn to John 13 with me. Well, there you go. It's a truth for Life website, four dollars. It's not what I paid for it. <laughs> I'm have to go back and get, get my money back. <laughs> if y'all want book deals? Just find the bonzers. <laughs> they will hook you up. <laughs> <The> black market. <laughs> All right, John Thirteen. This morning we will be finishing. John 13. Uh, John has given us the privilege to join him in the upper room as Jesus spends these final hours of his life at the Passover meal with his disciples. And it's already been a rich experience so far, and we've only just begun this grand section of Scripture. The scene began uh, with Christ stooping from his position of honor at this table down to the humble, lowly appearance and work as a slave as he washes the feet of the disciples and really gives a magnificent portrait of what he's about to accomplish for them at the cross. He's going to cleanse and and purify them. And then we watched as Jesus resumed his place at the table to his seat of honor And he applies what he has just done to his disciples. He says that they ought to are obligated to do to one another what he has first done for them. He says that his act of foot washing pointed to the cross, and that sets the model for Christian life. We're not just saved by the cross, but it is the pattern for Christian life. Humble, selfless service And love to one another. And after explaining that, the scene suddenly changes to where we were last week. It grows dark and heavy and weighty. Christ is overcome by this sense of trouble and inner turmoil as he knows one of his twelve is about to betray him. And even though Jesus knew from the very beginning who Judas was, what he would do, he actually chose Judas knowing what he would do, he is still in turmoil knowing and being cut deeply knowing that one who's so close to him would betray him. And we said how that displays the real human emotions of Christ. He's sovereign over this. He's in control of this. And yet, as a human, as one of us, He feels it deeply, and he's overcome by a sense of what Judas is about to do to him. And then he secretly exposes the identity of Judas to the beloved disciple, to John. He gives him this sign showing that it will be Judas. Again, John has given us eyewitness testimony. It's to prepare his disciples and to prepare us that we would know that this was not an accident. Christ is in full control of the whole event. And the scene ended with Christ dismissing Judas, right? He gives him the morsel, and he tells him, what you're about to do, do quickly. In other words, Christ is still in full control. He doesn't try to stop Judas. He's in control down to the very timing. He wants the events to get going. He tells Judas to go. And as he sends him out, the plan is set into now unstoppable motion. The the events are now going to begin to unfold very quickly in Christ's timing and there's no turning back now and so as we come to our verses this morning verses 31 to 38 Judas is gone and it's as if a great weight has been lifted from Christ and from the room itself the presence of Judas was very grieving and so long he was there Christ's heart is filled with trouble But now that he's gone, Jesus rejoices in what he's about to accomplish. And now that Judas is gone, the plan has been set into unstoppable motion. It's it's going to take place, it's quickly unfolding. Christ's troubled heart in verse 21 now changes into declarations of glory in verse 31. It's as though he sent Judas out, he's just crossed one of the first great hurdles. Needing to cross in the events of his passion. And now he's ready to prepare his disciples for his departure. And verse 31 is really where the the teaching formally begins. The farewell discourse is what people call it. We had teaching before this, but it wasn't the the straight uh, formal teaching that we get here through the end of chapter 16. Jesus now teaches his disciples explicitly about his soon departure. Before this point, the disciples are not aware that Jesus is about to leave them. They don't know that in a few hours their Messiah is going to be dead. We know it. We've been told it from the very beginning of this chapter. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. So we know it, but the disciples don't know it until now when Jesus tells them. And that is why we get this teaching all the way really through the end of chapter 17 to prepare them for this. So, just one shocking event after another. Betrayal of Judas, shocking. Christ is leaving. Shocking, and there's going to be a number more of these shocking events. He's preparing them as the disciples he loves. So I've entitled this, Jesus Bids His Disciples Farewell and Prepares Them for the Cross. None of us like farewells, do we? Um, We've all experienced them um, to one extent or another. They're painful, they're sorrowful. And so you can just sort of sense how the disciples are probably feeling during this time. They're asking themselves, what do you mean you're going away? You're, you're, you're the Messiah. Where are you going? How can that be good news? Why are you leaving us? And so Jesus is teaching them during these few chapters. So let's begin. He begins in verses 31 to 35 by preparing his disciples... For his departure in these verses Jesus is going to give us three things one after another to help the disciples and help us understand the cross rightly he gives them these things now so that when the cross does happen they will be able to interpret it correctly he's giving them the lenses now so that when he departs and goes to the cross, they will interpret it correctly and live correctly in light of it. So let's look at these. The first way he prepares them is by giving them an interpretation of the cross in terms of glory. Look at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, as when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So let's break these verses down a little bit. Again, note the change in the mood of the room. From sorrow and trouble in his heart now to declarations of glory and triumph. rejoicing this is the end goal this is the joy that is set before Christ through which he endures the cross in verse 31 he explains the mutual glorification of the father and the son through the cross see this all through John the father is after the son's glory and the son is after the father's glory in this pursuit is going to reach its climax in the cross. Jesus declares that the Son of Man is going to be glorified in the cross. Look what he says, verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified. So we know the Son of Man is this title Jesus uses repeatedly for himself. It doesn't merely highlight his humanity, although that's implied. There's something more. It harkens us back to Daniel 7, this vision of the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, a a title for God. And he receives a kingdom and glory and dominion that will never pass away. It's the picture of a conquering, triumphant king who will reign forever, one on the same level as God himself, this heavenly figure. But in the Gospel of John, this title, Son of Man, is often coupled with references to Christ's death and his suffering and his sacrifice. So the question is, how do these two things come together, a triumphant son of man and a suffering dead Jesus Christ? How do they come together? The answer is that in Christ's cross and death and sacrifice, he will triumph. He will cast Satan He will satisfy all of God's righteous demands. He will accomplish redemption for God's people in a way that not even the Exodus could do. He will triumph through his cross. And that will be the moment of his greatest glory as the Son of Man. Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. And though the disciples do not understand what he means... This is the way they must interpret the cross when it does happen. It's going to be shocking for them. Their Messiah is going to be put to death. But Jesus says when it happens, you must interpret it it, through the lenses of glory. This is Christ's triumph. Listen to a verse here. You know this in Revelation 5. Listen to how these two things come together. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. But when John turns around and looks, what does he see? He looked and he saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain. In other words, it doesn't contradict that he's not the lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquered, and he conquered as a lamb who was slain. That is his glory, and that is what he is telling his disciples here. That's not all. There is also the glorification of the Father in Christ. Look what he says. And God is glorified. In him, God here clearly refers to God the Father. The aim of Christ's coming, the aim of His cross, was the glory of the Father. It was the visible splendor of the Father's character put on display. And this happens in the cross because what Christ was accomplishing was none other than the Father's plan. So go over to chapter 17, verse 4. Why does Christ's cross redound to the glory of the Father? It's because it was His plan. It was the Father's work. Chapter 17, verse 4. I glorified you. There it is. Christ glorifies the Father. How? By accomplishing all the work you gave me to do. Ultimately, the cross. How does that glorify the Father? It's because when we see the cross and all that Christ accomplished in the cross, our eyes must be led all the way up to the fountain from which all of this is flowing. It was all the Father's plan, all the result of His great love for you and for me. That's how Christ glorified the Father, by accomplishing His work. It was the Father's plan. John Calvin wrote, In all the creatures, indeed, both high and low, the glory of God shines. In other words, you look at creation, you see the glory of God. But nowhere has it shown more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifested. Sin has been blotted out. Salvation has been restored to men. And in short, the whole world has been renewed and everything restored to good order. It's because of what God has accomplished in the cross. And the glory of his heart and love in the cross that his glory is put on display. So that's the first thing Jesus teaches them. He wants them to know the cross and interpret the cross in terms of glory. Next, look at verse 32. Go back to chapter 13. Jesus now turns our eyes forward to the immediate exaltation of the Son by the Father following his crossword. He says if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus says if verse 31 is true, if the Father is so perfectly glorified and His work so perfectly completed by the Son, then this is how the Father will respond to the Son. He will glorify His Son. The Son will only be glorified in the splendor of His cross. He will be glorified as He's returned to the glory with His Father in heavenly glory that He enjoyed for eternity before his incarnation. It's how the Father will respond to Christ. Go back to chapter 17. We just read verse 4. He glorifies the Father by accomplishing his work. And look at verse 5, how the Father responds. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Father responds to the Son in complete satisfaction by returning him to heavenly glory. That's why the resurrection and the ascension are so essential. Had Christ not been raised and ascended, it would have been a clear sign that the Father was not glorified. He was not satisfied. Christ did not accomplish all the Father's work. But the fact that he's raised and ascends to the Father is a testimony loud and clear that the Father has glorified Him because He's accomplished and brought perfect glory to the Father at all of His plans. That is how the disciples must interpret these events in terms of glory. That's not the only thing. Coming out of verse 33. Jesus wants to prepare the disciples for his departure. If the Father will glorify his Son by returning him to heavenly glory, then that must mean Jesus will no longer be with his disciples in his bodily presence. So verse 33, Jesus prepares them with an explanation of his impending departure from the disciples. Look at verse 33. Little children... Yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. Notice how he begins this. He says, Little children. It's an expression only found in John's writings. Jesus only says it here, and John says it a few times in his letter, First John. It's a term of endearment, and care, and love, and affection. As his little children, Jesus speaks to them to protect them, and to provide for them. He only has good intentions in what he's about to speak to them, even though it doesn't sound like it. Little children. And then he tells them that he will only be with them a little longer, and they cannot go where he is going. Jesus already said this to the unbelieving Jews. Do you remember that? Back at the Feast of Booths in chapters 7 and 8, he told them, where I am going, you cannot come. But it applied very differently to the unbelieving Jews than it applies to the disciples here. Back then, in in chapters 7 and 8, Jesus told these unbelieving Jews, I'm going to the one who sent me, And where I'm going, you cannot come. And he tells them why. Because unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They're not going to the Father. They will die eternally in their sins, cut off from Christ. Because they don't believe in him. That's what he's saying to the unbelieving Jews. You will not be able to go where I'm going. But the disciples are not in that condition. They're his little children, right? They love Christ. They believe in Christ. So why does he say this to them? To answer that question, we need to know where he is going. Where is Christ going? You tell me. He's going to the cross and he's going to the Father, right? So I think we can say, where are you going, Jesus? You're going to the Father. By means of the cross. That's what he's saying. I'm going to the Father through the cross. And he tells them they cannot go on this path with him now. He must travel it alone. He's going to die a unique death for his disciples And through that, return to the Father to prepare a place for his disciples. What we will see next week in the glorious verses of chapter 14. And then they will be able to go with him. But not now. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I have a unique work to accomplish. So all of this to say, Jesus' departure from the disciples is necessary. And it's good news. It's good news that he goes away, and it's necessary. They cannot go with him immediately. He must accomplish work for them, and then they'll be ready not only to go with him, but also to die on a cross as they follow him. And we're going to come to that in a few verses. But first we have to answer another question. If Christ is departing from his disciples through the cross to the Father, and his disciples cannot go now, then what should characterize them while he is away? If he's going to the cross to be glorified and then return to heavenly glory with the Father, and if he's doing this alone for their eternal well-being, then how should the disciples live in between his two comings? What should characterize the church while Christ is away? And that is what he gives next. It's the third way he prepares them for his departure. With a new commandment for his disciples while he is away. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Upon the completion of Christ's cross and return to the Father, a new and seismic shift will have taken place in salvation history. Redemption has been accomplished, Satan cast out, the new covenant promises inaugurated and fulfilled. And owing to that shift, a new way of living must ensue. Life cannot go on as it had before. So significant are the things that Christ accomplished in the newness of this era after Christ's departure that a new commandment is needed for his disciples so in verse 34 Jesus gives us the new mandate for Christ's disciples he says I new commandment I give to you I take this new commandment as corresponding directly to the new covenant the new Covenant. Christ gives his disciples a new commandment for this new covenant age. This is the commandment that must come to define and shape his new covenant people, the church, while he is away. What is it? Love one another. He gives this word love four times in these two verses. Love one another. He modeled this in the foot washing, but now he's giving it to the church as a commandment which summarizes all that they are to do and all that they are to be as a new covenant community while he is away. Love one another. The question naturally arises, what makes this a new commandment? How is this a new commandment? Wasn't love also commanded in the Old Testament? Wasn't the command summed up? Command to love summed up all the others? This is what Jesus said, isn't it? He quotes the Shema and Leviticus. You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says on this hang all the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament is summed up with these two commands. So what do you mean, Jesus? This is a new commandment. It's not a new commandment. Well, I don't think the commandment is new and that love, the command to love is new. I think it's new for two other important factors. I'll give those to you. How is this commandment new? It is a new commandment and that love is to be directed toward disciples of Christ. It says, love one another. One another. One another. says it three times. The lines have been redrawn. The new covenant community, which is defined and delineated by Christ's work and faith in that work, the way believers experience the New Covenant promises, and all those in the New Covenant are defined by these. The borders have been redrawn. It would have been an astonishing thing to tell Jewish people. No longer is the Old Covenant community defined by the law of Moses the borders around which you are to function. There's a new community. The primary community to which Christ's disciples belong. And this is where their primary responsibility lies. To one another. And again, obviously this doesn't mean we shouldn't love our neighbor or outsiders or unbelievers or even our enemies. Christ just demonstrated profound love for enemies, didn't he? In his love for Judas. So we should do that. It just means that the church is the place a disciple's primary obligation lies. You must love one another, the church. And we know this distinction well. We have a unique love for our family, don't we? I love others, not in my family, but I have a unique love and commitment and relationship with with my family in a way I don't with anyone else. That's what Jesus is saying about his disciples. That's the first way in which I think this is a new commandment. The borders have been redrawn. It's one another, disciples of Christ. It's also a new commandment in that love is to be patterned after and motivated by Christ's love. What he says, what makes it new? Love one another just as I have loved you. It's a lifestyle which responds to the greatness of love received by Christ and by reflecting that out to other disciples. It's modeled after Christ's sacrifice, a humble, self-denying, emptying love. love in that way. And it's love which is motivated by what Christ has done for you. Love as I have loved you. And as such, that is a higher standard than anything that ever went before, isn't it? So that is how it's a new commandment. Look at verse 35. We'll come back to applying this in just a minute. Look at verse 35. He gives them a new mandate, and now he gives them the defining mark of Christ's disciples. Verse 35 says, "By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another." Christ-like humble love is to be the distinguishing mark of the new covenant people of Christ. When disciples, when the church is characterized by Christ-like love to one another, it will be a clear signal to the world that we are disciples of Christ. We've received his love. We've experienced it. Or you could say it like this. If this mark is missing, love for one another in the church, of the kind that's modeled after Christ, if that's missing, it discredits witness it contradicts the very message that we proclaim but if this way of living is present among us it is the way which the very gospel and the very triune character of God is put on display to the world it is the mark that the true church is to be identified by so if you want to have a clear testimony to the world, we're often told we have to go out and do all kinds of social activity to really show that we are Christ's disciples. There's nothing wrong with showing Christian love to people outside of the church. But that is not the distinguishing mark. You want to have a testimony that you're his disciple and shine as his disciples to the world? Love one another. Give your life to the church. That's what he says. So before we move on, let me give a few applications to try to help this stick a little bit deeper. Number one, know that this is a humbling mandate. D.A. Carson wrote this, thought it so helpful when I read it. The more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher the standard appears. And the higher his standard appears, the more we recognize our own selfishness, and innate self-centeredness, and the depth of our own sin. With a standard like this, no thoughtful believer can ever say, this side of the parousia, that means the second coming of Christ, I am perfectly keeping the basic stipulation of the new covenant. This mandate is meant to drive you deeper into a conscious experience of dependence on the love of Christ. Because I tell you, you come short. And I come very short of this standard. And it's meant to drive us deeper in dependence on him and receiving the greatness of his love to us. Which ought to motivate us. When it does, it only heightens that bar even more, doesn't it? Shows us how still short we come. And that's the cycle of the Christian life. Driving us to Christ in dependence on His love and growing us in our own love. And as that happens, it drives us deeper into Christ's love. So don't be discouraged by your failure. Run to Christ. Know His love. And then seek to grow in that love to one another. Number two, remember this is a joy-giving mandate. Look up at verse 17. Chapter 13, 17, it says, If you know these things, happy are you, blessed are you, if you do them. This is where true happiness is to be found, in self-denial. What a strange thing it will be to the world. A body of people that are not seeking happiness by self-centered pursuits, like everyone else in the world is doing, but are genuinely happy. But they're just pouring their lives out for one another. This is where true happiness and joy is found as we pursue this. We ought to be the happiest people in the world. Number three, examine your life for the smart. When was the last time you actively, consciously laid down your life for the good of a brother or sister in your church? I know many of you put me to shame in this. You love one another extremely well. So I'm asking this question for myself. and am calling it all of us to be careful. Let's not forget this primary mandate. Examine your life. Where is it? It might look like things the world does not call love, like speaking truth or calling people to repentance. So the Bible must define what we're talking about but the motivation is love. So where is it in your life? What practical ways are you looking out in the church to pour yourself out in love for one another? It's what disciples must do. It's not optional. Mm -hmm. So these are three ways that Christ prepares his disciples tells them they must interpret the cross in terms of glory. He tells them he must go away and it's for their good. And he tells them while he is away, devote yourselves to love in the church. Very quickly, we have a few more verses to go. Peter speaks up again. Out of all that Jesus has said, Peter zeroes in on Christ's statement that he's going away. So at verse 36 to 38, Jesus prepares Peter for his denial. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. You will follow me afterward. That's the first way Jesus prepares Peter by explaining Peter's present inability to follow him. It's the question everyone is wondering. Look down in chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas asks it again. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? They don't know where he's going. His words would have filled their heart with sorrow and confusion. They don't know why he must go, and they don't know where he is going. So Jesus responds by saying something very similar as he did in verse 33, but a bit different. Look what he says. Where I'm going, you're not able to follow me now, but afterward you will follow me. He has a unique work to accomplish for his disciples, and after that, his disciples will be able to follow him to the Father. But I think Jesus also means to imply that disciples will follow him to the Father in a similar way that he went to the Father. The word follow highlights that it's not only the destination that's the same, but the pathway is the same. Peter will indeed follow Christ afterward. He too will go the pathway of the cross through suffering for the testimony of Christ through which he will enter the Father's presence. John 21, Jesus tells Peter, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted when you're old you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go this was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify god peter too will follow christ and it's the truth for all disciples no we're not going to all suffer in the same way peter and john didn't suffer in the same way but this is the pathway for disciples, the cross. Not for atonement, not for salvation, but by following Christ in dependence on him as Lord. But Peter, Jesus says Peter's not yet able to follow him, certainly because he has a unique work to perform, but also because Peter is not yet ready to die. Verse 37 to 38. In verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord... Why can I not go and follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, you will lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Peter says that he's ready to lay his life down for Christ. It's very ironic because that... Expression Lay my life down is what Christ has repeatedly said he's going to do for his disciples, right? I lay my life down for the sheep. It's substitutionary language. I sacrifice myself, die so you don't have to. But Peter's saying, Lord, I will lay my life down for you. It's as though he's saying, I will die so that you don't have to die, Jesus. So not only is he ignorant of the fact that Jesus must die, He's also ignorant of his own inability. See, it's only as Peter is first died for and receives the substitutionary work of Christ for him that he will then be able to die and lay his life down for Christ. Look at Christ's reply, verse 38. You will deny me three times. To deny is to disown Christ. Peter will do that before the night is over. He's not able to follow Christ now. Christ must die a unique death for Peter, and until Peter experiences that substitutionary work, he will never be able to lay his life down for Christ. And the same pattern is true for all of us. We are not to follow Christ on the Calvary road to secure our salvation, but we follow him even to the point of dying for him because he's already died for us. And secured our redemption. But before Peter gets to chapter 21, where he lays his life down, he's going to first have to pass through the waters of chapter 18, where he disowns Christ. Christ's predictions come true. But here's the good news. Jesus is telling this to Peter for no other reason than to prepare him for it. That after it takes place, Peter will remember Christ's words. Look at the promise. You will follow me afterward. It's a promise he gave to Peter, even after knowing his failure. (laughs) Peter is not on the same level as Judas, in other words. He believes in and loves Jesus. His faith is small and frail. But since Peter and the other disciples are Christ's sheep, he prepares them for what is about to take place, so that he will not lose any of them. And when it does, then they will believe in all that he's told them. So he doesn't send Peter away like he sent Judas away. He keeps him. He protects him by his teaching. And that's what he's doing for each of you this morning and me. He will hold you fast. He will not let one of his chosen sheep go. He's preparing Peter for this so that when he fails, he will turn again. He'll be saved. we do that, we follow him to the Father by faith alone in his work. And then once we've received his work on our behalf, we're free to lay down our life for the cause of Christ. But it must be in that order. You see? So that's how Jesus bids his disciples farewell. He prepares them for the events of the cross. It's good news that Jesus is going away. And we're going to see much more of that good news in the chapters to come. Any questions, comments? As we go, thoughts of application? <clears throat> yes, Jen. Don't interpret your life by your circumstances. Interpret your circumstances by the love of Christ that you have confirmed to you in the Word and in the Gospel. Trust Him. He loves you, He will hold you fast. Questions? Comments? All right? Pray. Father, I thank you for Christ. Thank you for your word. Your glory is here. Thank you for giving it to us. Everything we need for life and godliness is here. If only we eat it. Oh, help us to eat it and receive what we've heard. I pray for the blessing of your spirit to come now and apply it to our hearts in great faith. That believing it, we would grow to be people who are changed by it. People of love. That our class, our church would more and more be marked by this crucial mark, love, for one another. It's why you've left us here. It's what you've commanded us to be about while you're gone. Help us be people who see the glory of Christ, who've known the salvation with which Christ has loved us, died for us, and keeps us. And let that drive us, Lord, to lay our lives down in love and testimony for Christ, even to the point of death. It is the mandate you've laid on us, Lord. We love you, praise you, and ask you to prepare our hearts for the service to come. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.